Greetings, family, and welcome to The Journey Continues, a Cities United podcast. My name is Anthony Smith, and I'll be your host each month as we take this journey together to reimagine public safety. Cities United is a national network that supports mayors, community leaders, and young leaders from all across the country who are all committed to creating safe, healthy, and hopeful communities for young Black men and boys and their families. On each episode, you will hear from key stakeholders from throughout our network who will help us examine the barriers and issues that young Black men and boys and their families face, while also helping us uplift their stories, identify solutions and best practices that will help us all reimagine public safety in this country and truly create spaces that are safe, healthy, and hopeful for all. On today's episode, you will hear from six key stakeholders from throughout our network, from diverse backgrounds from all across the country. They will help us examine the current state of our country as we deal with a global pandemic and the new demand for justice for Black lives due to the loss of life of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDade, and the countless others who we have lost to police violence and community violence. This conversation will not only help us get grounded in what's going on today, but it would also help us get clear on what a path forward could look like that will identify some key solutions and some high-level policy recommendations, but also help us find hope and faith and light in this work. Let's get to know Jamira, Jalen, Tanya, Ricky, Chastity, and Malron. Let's understand who they are, what they do, and why they do it. Hi, everyone. My name is Jamira Burley. I am super excited to be here. Uh, and I, my work really sits at the intersection of youth policy and social impact. Um, I work on issues related to global education, gun violence prevention, and criminal justice reform. Um, and I'm a long-term supporter of Cities United, having <clears throat> originally been a youth leader back in Philadelphia during its creation to now being able to sit on the advisory board and help to really provide some insight on how we can continue to make impact for the boys and men of color that we're fighting for. I got in this space because I saw how violence was directly impacting not only people in my community, but directly impacting my family. I lost my 20-year-old brother, Andre, to gun violence in Philadelphia. And I think that helped to really remove the rose-colored glasses from my eyes. It made me realize that while these things were happening, it didn't mean that they were permanent, right? These were these had to be permanent conditions. And that I, as a young person, can help to te- textualize some of the solutions that needed to happen in order for us to make our community safer. And um, over the last few years, I, as being involved in this work in many different facets and being able to lend my voice and experience, um, I definitely think that there is so much more work to be done, but also there's been a lot of more work that has, that has happened. Definitely. definitely. Uh, well, uh, my name is Jalen Lovell, 20 years old, uh, from the West End of Louisville, Kentucky, born and raised, currently a rising senior at Tennessee State University, uh, where my major is mass communications. Concentration in journalism. Um, really, as it pertains to the movement, I say at 16 years old, uh, my life changed and uh, I had a transformation of uh, reality and what's going on currently as we're seeing it today. I had the opportunity to uh, work for a youth violence prevention research center uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, where looking at root causes of violence and how we identify those. And at 16 years old coming in, you know, I understood racism was a problem. I understood my community didn't look like uh, other communities uh, on the eastern eastern part of Louisville, where uh, it's predominantly white. But I, I didn't understand the structural uh, aspect to that. 
So um, while working with them, I was able to uh, be enlightened and get a foundation of uh, why I don't have grocery stores in my community, why um, there's abandoned houses in my community, why violence is more prevalent. Just understanding root causes to all of this and the systemic issue um, that plays with that from there. So now I'm here. Uh, work with Cities United, a fellow. Uh, shout out to them, all the other fellows. And really just <laughs> here in Louisville, Kentucky on the front lines while I'm home for COVID, fighting for justice for Breonna Taylor and uh, beyond Breonna Taylor, um, trying to disseminate information to people that are also on the front lines of why situations like Breonna Taylor happen and how we can not only march, but how we can change the systemic issues in our city. So that's what I'm doing. Um, yes, my name is Tanya Lindsay. I was born and raised here in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, I have been in the medical field for over 20 years. Um, I have a degree in medical billing and coding. Um, a single mother of three. Um, and then I had some unforeseen events take place uh, in 2013. My 16-year-old son was shot and killed by his half-brother, um, in the summer. Um, so when that happened to me, I was very devastated. Um, so I started a journey with no guide, no direction. And I learned that they really did not have any support or resources for victims of homicide. Um, so that's what got me started on my own journey. Uh, and out of that tragedy, I had developed my own nonprofit. So I am the founder and the president of a nonprofit called SWAG for short, but it stands for Sisters and Supporters Working Against Gun Violence. Um, so when we started out, our mission was to educate, advocate, and bring awareness to gun violence. Um, but like I had said before, because there was no resources and no support, we wind up being more of a support group. So we wore two lands instead of one. Um, so we became a resource and a support for other victims of homicide like myself. And we also advocated in partnership and communicated um, in the community when it pertained to gun violence awareness. So we wind up doing two lenses instead of the one. Well, my name is Ricky Aiken, and I'm the founder and executive director of Inner City Innovators, a 501c3 nonprofit corporation committed to eradicating youth delinquency and gun violence in the inner city of West Palm Beach first and then beyond. And I kind of got started in this work because it became a passion of mine. It really was birthed out of me, tired of looking at the news. Uh, we got started in 2015, which was one of our deadliest summers on records. We had over 100 murders. And most of them happened in our community, the Tamron community, which is a little less than a two-mile radius. And, uh, you know, every day watching the news and seeing someone that I grew up with was gunned down or someone being arrested or thought of as a suspect. And the community really just being gripped and locked in, uh, in hopelessness and feeling like nothing could be done to turn things around. I am a native Kankakian, so I've been here my whole life. And I've watched my community change a lot. We are about an hour south of Chicago, population of about 27,000. Um, our demographic is now 40% Caucasian, 40% African-American, and 20% 
um, Latinx. So we are Browning since I was a little girl. Um, I have a degree in social work, undergrad and a master's degree. Um, and I'm certified as an addictions counselor. And then um, I do what I do because I love my community. This is my hometown. And I really felt very strongly that after the economic downturn of the 1980s, we just lost vision in the city of Kankakee. I don't believe in being a complainer and not having a solution. So I wanted to roll my sleeves up and get to work in my hometown. I really never wanted to be the mayor. I never had any idea that I would go into politics. Um, so I ran for city council in 2015 against an incumbent who I felt just wasn't very engaged in our ward. I really didn't have you know, much contact from him or really know what was going on in the city. And so um, I ran against him in 2015, won that seat. And then when I became a, a member of the city council, I really wanted to try to build a relationship with the mayor at the time. Um, and she just didn't seem very interested. I finally just got to a point where I felt like certain parts of the community had been really neglected and she wasn't open to change. And so I ran and um, I, was a, I won the election April 4th, 2017. And I was sworn in May 1st and I'm coming up on my the end of my first term. So I'm Mel Ron Kelly, Columbia, South Carolina, um, Deputy Chief of Police in Columbia Police Department. This is my hometown, born and raised in the north end of Columbia. Um, I've been in this position uh, for right at about six years. I've been at the police department for 22 years. Um, my career uh, span has been uh, as a community policeman, but also as an as a undercover officer in my city and just seeing the impact of not only policing, but, but crime that it's had on my community. Um, I've, I've shifted my views, if you will, as it relates to really going out to doing the work to try to save the lives of the people who most need it. And in my opinion, that's our young black males. Um, I had to really ask myself, what am I doing to save the next Mel Ron Kelly? And um, through that work and through my work, in 2012, man, I was straight up blessed to come in contact with Cities United in Philly, man. And it, it, it quite honestly, it changed my life. Um, it instilled in me some of the images that I had of not only myself as an African-American, but as a police officer. And it brought into perspective um, the work that desperately needs to be done on the one hand. On the other, it, it made me shift uh, my philosophies, just, just hanging around you, brother. This, my philosophies on how we needed to police, especially communities of color. And um, it's a balance, you know, it's, a, it's, it's hard being an African-American officer, man. You got police on one end and you got the African-American on the other and how you bridge that gap, because guess what? It's a gap. Um, for me, that's that's just straight up honesty and, and how I can be true to myself, We're at a crossroads my in our country, and my ancestors. People who paid, in the streets every day demanding so, justice for um, black lives. Just keeping Pushing in perspective what I'm here for and who I'm here for. Um, and to think how we can create and, and it's helped me keep us all police safe, healthy, and my community, and it's helped me so, be a better servant so to the community. We wanted to spend some time with our guests, really kind of framing the moment. How did we get here? Where are we, and what's going on? and think through who's leading the work and why it's different this time.
Yeah, I think more so beyond with Breonna Taylor, a narrative specifically as it relates to media. When you look at Sandra Bland, she was the angry black woman. You look at Trayvon Martin, he had a hoodie and attacked George Zimmer or uh, Mike Brown. He would rob the store, right? With as it refers to Breonna Taylor, nothing, you know, there isn't a negative image that we can place on her, right? A good morning. There's nothing we can place on her. Um, and then furthermore, people, you under it's in your face, like George Floyd. You see, you know, the officer on his knee is in your face. And I think with this one, we're just a lot more vigilant um, and demand, giving demands and standing up and saying, this is what needs to happen. Like, people are tired. Um, like, we were marching, we were marching on this 50 years ago for the same thing in Louisville, Kentucky. So I think people are saying enough is enough and change has to come. So I think that that's just the biggest difference. Uh, and then Breonna Taylor, like she was a frontline worker, right? She worked for EMS. Like, so it's, it's, it's just different this time. And I, I think we, we have potential to see change if we uh, do it the right way. Yeah, and I, I think another thing that's different about this youth, uh, a lot of my peers across the country are at the forefront of this change. It's like uh, you have the baby boomers, then you have my mom's generation of people. That's I think you're in that uh, nothing really happened. Then you have us as uh, Gen Z, and we're like, H none, like, you know, people say I'm not my ancestors, but actually, that's disrespect. We are ancestors, and to basically say that, you're dismantling the legacy that they did and everything that they did. So um, I think it's a matter of seeing youth at the forefront across the country, youth are leading this. Um, specifically here in Louisville, Kentucky, we have something called Injustice Square, which is the park right across from the mayor's office. Literally, we're going on almost 50 days where people are protesting every day at this park, uh, demanding justice uh, for Breonna Taylor. And a lot of it's led by youth. Some of it's led by uh, Black Lives Matter and then just other people uh, within the community. But um, you've had organizations pop up with youth specifically. There was a march a few weeks ago with just high school graduates. Uh, they wore their caps and gowns. So to see that, to see youth at the forefront, to see the next generation of people understanding this and saying, we don't want to do this for the next 50 years. I think that's what's different about this. The moment that we're currently in is a recognition that that blackness or black lives can't just be about black men. We also have to look at our whole holistic community and how trans men and women are being impacted by violence, how black women are being impacted by violence, um, either state violence or community violence. And I also think that at this moment, we're starting to realize that those two things do not live in silos, right? It, it, it's no surprising that where there is the most amount of community violence are in communities that are over policed by um, that are over policed by the system, that are lacking in resources and opportunities, that are um, their beha their everyday behavior is being criminalized and um, in one way but being monetized in another. And so I think this is a moment to really recognize that systems play a role in what happens in communities, and that we can't just say it's about folks in communities who are angry or frustrated. It actually all all correlates to the fact that we have created a world in which we have we have um, cultivated a very hostile environment for people to grow up and live. And what do you expect when you have oppressed a community for so long for them how to for them to respond? And so I think this moment is about looking at the intersectionality, making the connection between how state violence and interpersonal community violence is connected. How 
asking the question of how we reevaluate what safety means for black and brown communities, particularly for black communities, right? Police do not make us safe. They have never made us safe. Um, and I know that for some folks that might be a generational debate, but if we look at the very um, purpose of police, which has been decided by the courts, which is police are not, their job is not to protect individual folks, it is to protect laws or is to enforce laws and to protect property. Then we can recognize the institution in which we all pay into is not actually there to make our lives better. If anything, it actually makes our lives that much more frustrating and at times more dangerous. Um, at the same time, I think it's really important for us to really reevaluate um, what are the deeper systematic problems impacting our communities that creates the culture of violence? We know that violence is often a symptom of much deeper systematic problems. So how do we get communities to start thinking about providing quality education to communities of color? How do we get them to start thinking about the need to address um, the racial inequalities around economic development and housing um, and, and, and the environment, environmental justice all plays a role in the communities in which black and brown people grow up in. And so um, I'm, I'm excited that more unlikely suspects are showing up to the table. Um, I'll be even more excited when black and brown folks are not just voices in the spaces, but also are leading the conversation and providing the direction of where we need to go moving forward. And that direction has to start with putting those who are most impacted at the center of change and creating programs and initiatives that are gonna uplift those communities that eventually is gonna uplift all of us. First and foremost, being strategic um, do I believe we should reallocate, I'll say reallocate, funds from police departments or whatever governmental agency um, to infuse the community services? Definitely. As a police officer, I have officers who actually respond to homes of kids who refuse to go to school or uh, a person that's experiencing a mental breakdown. We call them the police. Why, why should we expose them to a law enforcement interaction when there is another uh, department that could possibly handle that. And if it takes law enforcement funds to do that, then so be it. Um, whatever chances we can take to lessen the exposure to individuals, uh, to law enforcement interactions, I say go for it. Um, I don't know what that price tag is, while it's not popular, but it makes sense. Um, officers wear many, many hats, from, from social workers, to parents, to paramedics. Um, how can we lessen that interaction? Because guess what? For, for, the, for the young people, especially the young brothers um, that come in contact with law enforcement, sometimes that's trauma, man. I, I know that when people get stopped by the police, they never forget it. So whatever we can do to lessen the likelihood of that trauma in some cases or that enforcement interaction, why not do that? Um, in a lot of cases, we're not even prepared to deal with the problem that we're, that we're there to deal with anyway, you know? To me, quite simply, um, is reimagining what policing is to us. Um, some of the people at the table making the decisions, be it police officers or commissions, um, aren't, aren't experiencing what our communities are experiencing. So I'll throw that back at you. How would an Anthony Smith want to be policed. What would the police department look like if you were the commissioner? You know, you and I'll use, I'll use your words, man, I learned a long time ago. How are we going to sit and have a conversation about the people that we're affecting and not have them at the table? I, I think I think it's insane for us to talk about how we're going to police communities and not have a community at the table. So again, it's reimagining how policing should look in our, in our communities. And that varies based on what community you're in. 
Um, the other part of that is just really having the, the fortitude to do it. Um, and I speak a lot about South Carolina being a right to work state versus a union shop. And, and I have friends that work in, in different areas of the country. And I see where um, police unions wield a lot of power in a lot of government agencies um, that I, I don't have the experience dealing with. Um, I can fire a problem officer if he or she violates a policy. But my, my partners in other parts of the country just can't simply do that. So re reimagining what policing should look like in the eyes of the people that we're so-called police and really being serious about it. We were challenged to think about policing and where we're putting our resources. And so I, I expressed in the rally Sunday, I'm not a, I'm not for defunding the police if you're using the term and to dismantling the police and have, not having a police department. But I am in favor of reallocating resources so that instead of hiring another police officer, would that money be better used to put back into the community or to hire someone that can support our families and our youth. So that's, I'm, I'm going to have some pushback on that because that's not the way we think. Um, and, I, and that's probably not unique to Kankakee. That's probably everywhere. Um, but I had those conversations and questions even before this incident happened, just from being a social worker and having that background. So I think there needs to be some education around that word defund. And that's why when I spoke at the rally Sunday, I said, if you're using it in this context, I do not support that. We had a double, we had a, a, a gentleman, um, he shot his wife and himself last week. And so there are situations where the police needs to respond. However, <laughs> there are many situations where the police don't need to respond. And that's what I've asked my chief. I, I said, I want you all to pull the data because I want to make data informed decisions as we make policy and make decisions as, you know, as we usually do. And tell me, you know, are 60% of the calls, calls that can be handled by somebody else and not the police? I need to know that um, because that's where we need to be directing our resources. What do we benefit from being in the school? Because it's always a tie to money and, and people want to justify doing the things they do, particularly in the criminal justice system because of money. Yeah. And so when money is tied into it, um, I know there's going to be pushback on this. I think a big part of our job as mayors is to create space, to create space where people are, feel comfortable. This is a very hard conversation to have. People are scared. People are scared to say the wrong thing. Uh, people are scared to verbalize something that may be a total misconception about another group. And so I think for mayors, it's really important that we create space, which is why we're working to put together these community conversations. Um, I think also there's been a miseducation of Americans overall, a complete miseducation. So I think that we have to really go back and look at our truth we wanted to spend some and educate time everybody about our what our truth really is. Think through what a path forward looks like. Who do we need to have at the table? What do we need to be doing? And how do we get there? Yeah. One of my favorite uh, sayings or quotes is that real change happens when the people who need it lead it. 
And I think uh, you guys are part of the model of what it's going to take to bring true and lasting transformation, especially to communities like mine, where you have to find the young men that are most affected by the violence uh, and by the injustices, by the concentrated disadvantage, and give them the resources that they really need uh, to carry the work. You know, no one has more incentive to end gun violence than the people who are most affected by it. No one has more incentive to end poverty than the people who are going home to poverty every day. So it's identifying those people and giving them what they need. You know, we don't we don't have the resources in and of ourselves because if we did, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. So I think uh, number one is identifying those voices and giving them the tools. And I could tell you right now, you know, my organization wouldn't be here uh, without Cities Unite and their faithful support over the years, you know, because I'm, I'm a high school dropout that eventually went on to get my GED, but I'm not uh, trained in the formal sense or educated in the formal sense. And that's a barrier for funding and different opportunities to get the work off the ground. But I think it's organizations like Cities United and leaders like yourself uh, who never shied away from equipping me and giving me the tools I needed in my community. And because of that, we've expanded into our sister cities. I think about the allies. I definitely don't think we have included the trans community in enough conversations. I don't think we have um, included the pol not the police officers, but really like in-depth police unions that are leading these discussions. Um, I mean, I'm all for abolishing them. <laughs> but until we can do that, it's like, how do we try to find some form of, or some some avenue in which we can operate or exist in some form together, recognizing that I think a lot of police officers are also realizing that they are, they have the jobs of community therapists. They have the jobs of nurses. They are doing more than they should be. And I think they also are feeling that frustration um, too. I also think we need to be including other practitioners, um, whether it's doctors in the emergency room who are dealing with the folks who are showing up impacted by gun violence, whether it's therapists who are really evaluating the generational trauma that Black folks are experiencing every single day. I read an article not that long ago that says a mother passes on, a mother bones actually carries on the generational trauma of past generations, which is passed on to the fetus after it's born. And so wow. just imagine the, the, the generational trauma we're all the baggage that we're all carrying around and how that contributes to our mental health and mental sustainability within this country but uh, I do I do think it's great to have allies in the movement specifically yesterday when we were at Daniel Cameron's house um, his neighbor uh, protesters were getting arrested for um, for trespassing one of his neighbors said hey i have chairs you guys are welcome in my yard and open up her space so it's it's things like that like using your privilege using your power i think as a white person will help beyond just posting a black box on instagram you know absolutely i think protesting is just uh, a micro part of the movement um there's this is a macro issue so um, there are several roles that can be played within it. I understand everyone isn't willing to risk their life and go out and protest, but I think it's important to find a part in the movement, especially if you're black. But um, if you're white, I think it's, it's, it's having those conversations within your workspace. Um, look around, look at your boardrooms. If you 
if everyone in the boardroom looks like you, that's a conversation that needs to be held. Um, within just at your round tables with the family, like talk about these conversations. Um, that's that's I think where we should start within addressing this. We have to address the problem. Like we have to get comfortable with talking about racism. Um, donate to bell funds, help people. Um, there's several initiatives I know here in Louisville, Feed the West, um, where they're providing groceries. I think it's it's just a matter of find your niche within it. If it's economics, if it's um, protesting, if it's policy, really just finding your niche within this movement and participating. We need inventors, people to invent, like Netflix. They gave a hundred million to black communities to startups, like philanthropic things, just things like that. Like there, there's so many uh, avenues that you can take within this besides sitting at home and uh, watching the news. And I think we need to re we need to really have an education. And then once that happens, I think we need to acknowledge what has happened. I think there needs to be an acknowledgement. I think that would be such a huge step for people of color. Because a lot of times white people are so defensive, like, well, I didn't do it, or you know, I didn't have a slave, <laughs> you know. And then, <laughs> you know, just that to me is the first part of healing. When somebody hear really hears and listens to you and they acknowledge your story and your and your feelings. I think that's a big part of it. And then we have to figure out how do we repair and and reconcile, you know? And part of that to me is, you know, the things you talked about, making sure that everybody has their basic needs. Right. I talked about, you know, divestment in my own community. It's been a policy and practice over administrations in the city of Kankakee, where they have divested in black and brown communities in the city of Kankakee. There's a huge difference. Things that are tolerated in black and brown communities in Kankakee, you would never be able to do that in the more affluent neighborhoods. Like they wouldn't tolerate flooding every time it rains heavy. They would not tolerate that. But it's okay in the black community. And so we've got a lot of work to do to get there. And in terms of people being at the table, I mean, I think somebody that represents all the systems. I would like to have a series of conversations and bring in a panel to talk about education, bring in a panel that talks about healthcare. Cause, because there's a lot of white people that don't understand why black people are scared of doctors. Right. And then when I tell them about the Tuskegee experiment and like they, they, these people had syphilis and they knew it and they didn't give them medication for this. Like they deliberately withheld treatment. And there's a lot of white people that don't know. So I think having someone at the table that can speak to all the systems, the political system, the banking system, the housing system, um, I think is really important. And and, and our activists, of course. I want to see, um, I want to see a system that works for all. Um, Whether that be the judicial system, um, our court system, um, our school system, um, our workforce. I want a system that is is gonna be. I want a system that is gonna be able to allow this this hold that are on our African Americans to be lifted, where they can feel like they are a part of a solution, where they can where they can strive and be successful, just like their counterparts. That's what a perfect world looks like for me. Um, and I want to start holding people accountable. 
there's got to be some accountability when that doesn't take place. Then the people we would bring to the table, you know, you got to start with the, the school system, you know, because, you know, as you know, in schools, the kids are disproportionate, you know, far as um, suspensions and, you know, everything that involves African-American is, is definitely in a disproportion. And I think all those systems, whether it's the school, the courts, or whoever, they all need to be brought and they need, they need to be held accountable. There has to be some accountability. How do you go about getting accountability for a system that's been broken so long? I don't have the answer to that. I really don't. But I do know just working and doing the work that I've done, I've learned and see how the system is broken. And when you say something about it being broken, people start thinking, well, that's this didn't happen overnight, I know, but you got to have a starting point. I know the broken systems, the school, courts, all that. I know it didn't happen overnight, but you got to start bringing people, holding people accountable. You got to start using those platforms. And I love the way, going back to the, I love the way that um, we've got those um, actresses, the actors, the celebrities, and everybody coming. That's what it got to take. Because when you bring those type of people in, they bring their own eyes on them and it starts holding people accountable. You know, you got to put eyes on the issue and start holding people accountable. And I really don't have the answer because if I would have had the answer, Anthony, I would have fixed it a long time ago. So, so one is definitely a multi-generational approach. Um, having the voices at the table who need to be there. And giving each other, each other, the tools to 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 move forward in that space. Um, I can remember a couple of convening, convenings ago. I believe it was um, Tennessee. The brothers got up from Durham, man, and they just talked about their experience of being young black males in Durham and losing friends. Some of us had never heard that before, and we were most of the room was driven to tears, man. And and I can tell you that um, having a having a multi generational approach, intersectional approach and, and having some expected or wanted outcomes and being very serious about wanting to see that. Um, I will never forget my first time sitting down listening to a Jameera Burley or Sean Dove, man, and just, just really letting it sink in their stories and what they had to say. It changes lives. It changes perspectives. I left, and I, each time I do, I left from those situations a changed man. And, and I think the more we can avail ourselves to situations like that, I, I do believe that we can, we can spark serious change. Um, the work is out there to be done, um, but I think we need to spread that message in a way that's substantive, that really impacts those who, who really need to, to feel it, see it, hear it. Um, just, just knowing that there, there's organizations like Cities United um, that is doing the work and uh, there's no doubt in my mind uh, that you want communities, Anthony, to be, you know, happy, healthy, hopeful, more just as much as you want your next breath. And, and just knowing that somebody, uh, you have allies out there um, that are fighting for these young young men, boys and girls, um, and really mean it because they've been set up to fail so many times. They've been given empty promises so many times, man. And that's, that's deep because we have so many among us that are hopeless. So brothers like yourself, man, are out there fighting the fight every day, uh, giving young folks hope, man. And I, it's just a blessing. It truly is. I know you're, you're a humble guy and you're not used to hearing stuff like that, man, but that's true. Just the work that we're doing is saving lives of people who don't even know that they need their lives saved. And, and I think we just got to redouble our efforts to make sure we get this work done. 
The road ahead is not easy, but we must keep moving forward. We're going to need bold leadership at all levels to really reimagine what public safety is and to create new systems that keep us all safe, healthy, and hopeful. I want to give a special shout out to our sponsor, Levi Strauss and Company. As a global iconic leader, Levi's knows that what they do and say matter. That's why they have pledged to support gun violence prevention efforts by providing grants to nonprofits and youth activists who are working to end gun violence across this country. By elevating the stories of the young people and grassroots organizations who are successfully implementing violence prevention strategies and funding nonprofits that use digital tools and platforms to empower youth activists, Levi's believe that they could counter the gun violence epidemic in this country and make communities around this nation safer. To learn more about their goals, please visit their website at levistrauss.com. That's L-E-V-I-S-T-R-A-U-S-S dot com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Journey Continues. I want to give a special shout out to our guests for sharing their wisdom and knowledge. We want to encourage you to join us each month as we continue to elevate new voices, new ideas, and new solutions as we push this country to reimagine what public safety can look like and how do we create safe, healthy, and hopeful communities for young black men and boys and their families. We look forward to continuing this journey with you all. Peace.